Hey, everybody. It is Trags. This is episode 18 of the Jungle Roar podcast, a Cincy football podcast. I welcome back old friend Mo Egger from ESPN 1530 700 WLW and an observer of everything Cincinnati sports. How you doing, Mo? I'm doing great, Trags. What's up, man? I am uh, want to get your read on these Bengals. Are you happy with five and four? Are you disappointed with five and four in between? Because covering the team, I, I can't get a read of what the five and four represents. Yeah, I can't either. Um, both in terms of what it's going to mean for the second half of the season and how most fans feel about it. I, I think being a Bengals fan, there's always this inherent apprehension that you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And mm-hmm. it, to a degree, felt like, that shoe was the Jets and Cleveland. But, I mean, it's it's hard to be upset. You can't be upset. You, you can't be thoroughly disappointed. They're five and four. Um, I think the frustrating thing for me is they lost those two games while they're healthy. And I just, mm. I, I play such a premium on health in this league. You, you know it. The, the teams that are most well put together from a health perspective often are the ones standing at the end. And, um who knows when that's going to fall apart? You, you expect it to fall apart. It's the NFL. That's, that's how it works. So you went into New York pretty much intact. I mean, we're, we're in late October, early November, and there's nobody on the injury report. You got to win those games, especially against inferior opponents, especially when you're up by 11 late. So that to me is, is frustrating. And, you know, I think the part of it that's, that's hard for a lot of people to reconcile themselves with is we love Joe Burrow. We're smitten with Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow is the guy. Joe going. Burrow has also shrunk in this team's margin for error by some just mystifying mistakes. And so you could look at it one of two ways. Um, if that persists, then this team is not going to realize its full potential. But if you believe that Joe Burrow can make a you know, second half of year two leap and eliminate some of those mistakes, it can offset some of those issues that may arise in the second half, like the defense regressing or injuries becoming a factor, and he can carry this team to the playoffs. I think that's entirely possible. I also think it's entirely possible that that doesn't happen and the defense performs more to the level that we thought it would or more to the level that it did against the Jets and and, uh, the Browns, and maybe injuries catch up with this team, and some of those 50-50 games don't go their way. And they're sitting there on the outside looking in. So I, my thoughts on Joe Burrow are the following. I think he feels he has to take the team on his shoulders too much. And I think that's because they haven't demonstrated an ability to run the freaking ball. And if you can't run the ball and Joe Burrow sees this, obviously when he hands off, hands off the ball and, you know, too often when they are third and short, and this has been a big bugaboo for this team and a, a big point of emphasis early this week and uh, before they went on the bye, C.J. Uzama pointed this out on Monday. Um, they got to be better on third and short running the ball. Run the ball when teams know you're going to run the ball. I mean, the perfect example of that is after Jesse Bates' 66-yard uh, interception return that wasn't 67. And you have four <laughs> shots at the one, and you literally move backward running the ball. I mean, the, the first two plays were runs, and they went backwards. That can't happen. No, it, it can. It's, it's interesting. I was thinking about this earlier this week. If you looked at Joe Mixon's numbers and projected them ahead to the, to the, the second half of the season, understanding there's an extra game, Right. He's on pace for 1,200 yards. He's on pace to rush for 13, 14 touchdowns. He's on pace for about 50 catches. You look at it statistically, he is averaging exactly his yards per carry total for his career, 4.2. Heck, he's one-tenth of, of a yard behind Derrick Henry's yards per carry average. But does it feel like he's having a good year? 
No, it, it because I'll tell you why. I'll tell yeah. you why. When they need to run the ball third and short, they're horrific, right. Mo. They yeah. just cannot move the defensive line. They can't create the gaps. Mm-hmm. But like CJ said this week, we need to be able to give him a sliver of a gap, and he's going to get us one to two yards. And maybe if we give him that, he'll turn one or two yards into three or four, and bingo, we move the sticks. Yeah, you know, it's I, I love how he ran and how the running game worked against Pittsburgh, where it just felt like he was following his blockers and his blockers were blocking the right guy. And, and they weren't, you know, 40, 50 yard runs, but they were enough. He averaged five a carry in that game. And I thought, mm-hmm. all right, this is how the run game should look like. And, and if you're asking Joe Mixon to, you know, to reel off these 30, 40 yard runs, you're asking a little bit too much, but he's not going to need to. And since that game that part of the offense has left a lot to be desired. And and again, on one hand, you could look at the numbers and go, Joe Mixon's not a problem. The running game's not a problem. But if you watch this team and if you watch them situational and you're right, there have been so many moments where you thought, okay, they can get two here on the ground. They get one uh, where they just don't execute where you would think a running back of his caliber and an improved offensive line would be able to execute the, the, the run game. You know, it's all the cliched stuff. As as the weather gets colder, as these games get closer, all right. that sort of stuff. They AFC North games, and AFC blah, blah, North blah. games, all that stuff. They they've got to tap into that more. There's no there's no question. Um, I think one solution to that uh, also, Mo, is uh, being able to throw the ball short checkdowns. I don't. If you ask me, one area where I think Joe Burrow can improve his game, it's not. Okay, 50-50 ball. It's 50-50 ball when all hope is lost. Go for Jamar. You've got to mm-hmm. be better than that. And he's got to be able to check down to CJ. He's got to be able we saw some of that early on in the game against the Browns. First two drives, I thought Burroughs play mix and, and Callahan and Zach Taylor were very good. Um, you got to be able to check down to CJ Uzama. I want to see more of Chris Evans. He's shown me enough that yeah. If you put Chris Evans and Joe Mixon and CJ Uzama out there with two receivers, I think that works, right? If I'm mm-hmm. doing the math correctly, who you got to you got to do what Andy Reid does with the Chiefs' offense: make defenses pick. And I don't think the Bengals, when they go out three wide, four wide, you're you're telling the opposition, the defense, what you're going to do. Yeah, it just seems very uncreative. You know, all right, we're, we're going to let Joe do what he did at LSU, which is we're going to spread the field, let him make a read. And I, right. I get it to a degree, right? We're going to spread these guys out, and there's no way the defense has enough uh, DBs and, and quality linebackers to cover them all. At the same time, it just it, it looks schematically really easy to defend. It just, to me, highlights right. a lack of uh, creativity. You mentioned Chris Evans, who I'm a huge fan of, and, and you, maybe you, you wonder a little bit because he had the – the breakout game, if you will, against Detroit. Then he didn't play against the Jets because of the injury. And he, you know, he didn't right. really factor against the Browns. Yeah. So, so what if that's not an issue? What, what do they build on from the Detroit game? But yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's, it's felt to me like even the usage of Tyler Boyd in this offense leaves mm. a lot to be desired. I thought Tyler Boyd really stood a chance to have a high volume catch year because he was going to catch short stuff slants. He was going to be matched up against slot corners and linebackers and maybe safeties and and you could figure out a way to design stuff for him and that really hasn't materialized you see glimpses of it with cj you saw the glimpse with chris evans heck i i I mean you know again joe mixon's on pace to catch 49 balls this year but but there's there's a role for him in this offense that they've never really tapped into going back to beyond 2021 but yeah it just it, it feels like their offense is all right spread the field joe make a read and I don't think that's sustainable. And and I don't think it's fair to a quarterback who's still 
you know, pretty inexperienced in the NFL. There's for for all of of Zach Taylor's attributes as a head coach, and I've I've come to believe that there are many. There is a lack of just vision and creativity on offense that you would like to see become less of a thing in the second half. I also think he is quietly stubborn. I think we get fooled looking at how pleasant he is. He comes off and he does. He comes off <laughs> yeah, very pleasant. He's affable. Mm-hmm. he's affable. He's smiling. I think for the most part, he's uh, very genuine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he is incredibly stubborn. And you know how you know this, Mo? He is not going to give up play calling duties. That's yeah. just not going to be part of his M.O. Uh, no pun intended. Um, he's just not, he's not going to do that. And I don't know if that comes across to you the same way, but I think he's stubborn and I'm, he's like, this is my offense. This is my vision for what Joe Burrow should be. And I'm going to stick with it. I, I yeah. wonder about that. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I wonder it, it just, if everybody sat down and I would like to think this would happen by the end of the year, but if you go back in the first half of the season, um, they were healthy. Everybody loves the quarterback. The offensive line has been okay. They have great weaponry. Um, T Higgins missed a couple of games and, you know, Joe was hobbled a little bit, but for the most part, they've been intact. And yet they went through these huge lulls offensively. The first half against Jacksonville, the, 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 the entire Chicago game. Where the first like half just, against Detroit, for that matter. They yeah, were the horrific. First, just spinning their tires. And you go, okay, well. Got the quarterback lines better. Weaponry's good. Okay. Are the, are the pieces not being put in the right place? And I, I, I think that's worthy of examination. And I think you're right. I, I think to a degree, Zach is stubborn. You would like to think that maybe at some point by the end of the year, if that persists, that a conversation can be had among, you know, the people who make decisions and go, okay, man, there's, there's, there's a lot, there's a, a lot to like about Zach Taylor, that the culture has changed. The team plays for him. Um, the, the leadership seems to be there. Okay, great. We like this. Now let's examine the offense and what could be done to tap into what they have a little bit more. Does that involve Zach calling the plays? Does, does that involve bringing somebody in from the outside? Does that involve giving Brian Callahan a, a chance to, to run the offense autonomously? I, I don't know the answer to that, but, but to me, that's, that's one of the things that really is a storyline in the second half of the season. Does the offense get out of the, the rut that we've seen it be in over the first nine games? And if it does, what do we attribute it to? And if it doesn't, what do we attribute it to? And I think, again, if you like the pieces and you like the quarterback and everybody's healthy, well, then are, are the guys being put in the right spots? And I think you're being very fair. If so far you conclude that the answer is no. Right. And I, I just think that, you know, you touched on it. One thing that I, I didn't see it to this degree. Mo, the, I did not see the culture in that locker room changing as drastically as it has. And, and certainly Zach Taylor deserves some credit, but, but the players deserve the credit in, in my estimation. And the two guys I really want to touch on are CJ Uzama and Jesse Bates. And, and to a lesser degree, I, I certainly should put Joe Mixon in there. I think he has stepped up in terms of big time this year, mm-hmm. uh, but their leadership in that locker room is much better. And I mm-hmm. think it's much stronger. And I think uh, Zach Taylor deserves credit for like enabling uh, those players. And look, what they did after the Jet game, you can say, it, you know, the cynics and uh, all of us can say, well, they did the, the uh, what is it? The, um, the, the, I can't think of the, the word, the happy trio, the uh, yes. gang of three. <laughs> uh, anyway, they did that to get out of uh, MetLife Stadium in a hurry. 
I don't think so. I think they legitimately wanted to show a solidarity uh, and a front that they were unified and they, these weren't going to be the same old backbiting Bengals. Right. And I think what CJ Uzama uh, said after the loss to the Browns about his conversation with Jamar chase was significant. I think the fact that he was like, look, it's not on any one player's shoulders. It's on all of us to do better and just do what we can do. But don't think that you've got to carry everybody. And I think that's where a lot of the culture has changed inside that locker room. Yeah. And, you know, every coach in every sport, they get the gig and they talk about culture. But, you know, it 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 did feel like it took two years for the team to be um, <clears throat> constructed in the image that, that Zach had, and you're not hearing and reading about him losing the team. And, and look, I, I, I really do think if you examine the first two years, and I think you and I talked about this before the season, every conceivable thing conspired against Zach Taylor having success from mm-hmm. the timing with which he got the job to the timing with which the staff was assembled to, you know, walking into a team that the front office that first year really didn't make any better. The quarterback situation, you know, Andy Dalton was kind of a lame duck. Nothing worked. Jonah Williams gets hurt um, in OTAs. AJ Green gets hurt the first day of camp. It just, if it could go, if it could work against Zach Taylor, Cordy Glenn didn't want to play. I mean, there were just a thousand things that just worked against him. So, okay, they go two and 14. And then last year, COVID, rookie quarterback, uh, the Carlos Dunlap situation where he clearly wasn't on board. Um, I, I think it, it said something, though, watching that team through its first two years. I never thought, God, they've quit on their coach. I've, I never thought, boy, it, it looks like they don't know what they're, they're doing. I really didn't buy the stories about losing the locker room. I thought that was a couple of holdovers from Marvin Lewis um, expressing frustration, and some of them leaked their yes. issues to a handful of members of the media. But as I watched the team, you know, again, at the end of the year last year, Zach Taylor beat the Pittsburgh Steelers with Ryan Finley completing seven passes. And then the following week when I thought, all right, this team's going to mail it in. They got their win. It's week 16. They're moving on. They went to Houston and won. And no great accomplishment, but with a backup quarterback and Brandon Allen. And I thought, okay, all of this really reflects well on Zach Taylor. Of course, 2021 is all about winning games. Well, so far he's done that. And that's great. And that's to his credit. And I'm comfortable. And I think most Bengals fans are comfortable with the idea of Zach being the head coach. But again, within that, are we comfortable with him being the primary play caller? And if you went to Zach and said, hey, we're we love X, Y, Z, but there's one or two things about what you're doing that we're going to have to address. And it's it's primarily play calling. Uh, and so we're going to have to examine that. I, I wonder, you know, what would, what would his reaction be? He wouldn't have if, if his boss came to Duke Tobin, if the Brown family came to him and said, Zach, you're the coach. Great. We're not going to call plays anymore. We're not reducing your salary. What's he going to do? Right. <laughs> so, but I, but I do think, I, 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 I think if he was a little bit more open-minded, he would be okay with that. He would be, and, and, and look, maybe they take off offensively in the second half, and this is not a discussion, but, you know, as I said before, if you watched him in the first half, quarterbacks, you know, I mean, can get better, but you're happy with the QB. You're happy with the weaponry. You're healthy. Line's better. Why does this offense spin its wheels? Is it play calling? Is it play design? Is it personnel usage? Those things fall on the head coach and the play caller. So Jesse Bates, Joe Mixon, and Tyler Boyd, what I could not think of the phrase, the three amigos, that's what we called three them. amigos. Yes. Thank you. I was, it's too early in the morning. Early. Tape. I know, I know <laughs> nobody going to care about that. Anyway, look, we haven't talked about the defensive side of the ball. 
throw out the last 67 minutes of game action. I think this Uh defense is much, much, much improved over 2020 and obviously 2019. But I'm getting concerned that they're starting not to get to the quarterback again outside of Trey Hendrickson. Yeah. I'm starting to get concerned that they are not uh, good in space again, that their linebackers are being isolated, and that's only going to be attacked more with Keem Davis Gaither apparently out for the year uh, with a foot injury. I am concerned about the defense holding up over the second half of the season with some of the offenses they're going to see. I think Luana Rumo's done a fantastic job in terms of using the personnel. I think Duke Tobin did a great job of reformulating the defense in the offseason. Um, but I got, I must say that I have some trepidation going into the Raider game and going into the second half of the season of how good this defense can be. Yeah. I'm, I share those concerns and I would add to it that they're still sort of making it up on the fly in the secondary and injuries sure have are. Something to do with that, <laughs> but you know, um, and, and, and good for them for doing it. I mean, Vernon Hargraves is a former first round pick. And so, you know, that's the kind of player that, uh, a lot of teams would like to give a, you know, a flyer to, and, 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 and they have, and, you know, good for them for not standing pat, but yeah, look, I mean, there was a reason why they drafted three edge rushers and unfortunately two of them can't play. It's because uh, they needed to emphasize getting to the quarterback and Trey Hendrickson has been fine. I, I think to a degree, he's been a little bit of a pleasant surprise for those who thought that his sack total last year was a function of circumstance and the defense that he was in and stuff, but it's, it's not been there consistently. I share every concern that you have and, and they drastically overachieved. I think we would agree. I mean, at, at one point they were ranked in the top five of the NFL defensively. This is not a top five defense. No. But, and, and I think what, and not to interrupt you, Mo, but I mm-hmm. think that Baltimore game, that's when people were like, wow, this defense yeah. is going to be uh, one of the best in the National Football League. And I was like, OK, if they can keep this up over a long period of time, I'll buy in. But it's one game. Yeah. And and where do you look at him? If you're an offensive coordinator on a Monday night, you're sitting down to to you know work on the game plan. Where are you looking at this defense like? okay, we have to keep this player or this position group from destroying everything we're trying to do. It doesn't exist on this team. I, I don't know that th- there's not a difference maker. Mm, and, you know, I don't know about that. I, I'd say the two guys in the middle of the defensive line are where I'd start. Uh, I, I, would st- I, w- I would I would start there. But, I, I mean, you know, DJ Reader and Larry Ogunjobi, they've played well. Are they unblockable? I mean, are are you are you like holy crap? No, we have to. No. I, I I get. I see where you're going. Are they it, productive players? One hundred percent. Right. But do they? I don't know. For me, as if I'm if I'm rooting for the team playing the Bengals, uh, I'm not laying awake on Saturday night thinking, oh my God, DJ Reader is going to screw up our offense. That's and again, I mean, you know, most defenses, most really good defenses, it's not like there's eleven Pro Bowlers. Um, but but is I don't know that there's a, a player that you just sit down and go, boy, this guy can just wreak havoc on us. Reader and Ogunjobi might be the most likely players you would say that about. But Jesse Bates has underperformed this year by his own. Yes, admission. I was going to get to that, but continue. The, 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 the corners, you know, we've watched a lot of Eli Apple this year, and I'm there's not sure a that's a good thing. There's a reason yeah. for that. And, you know, Logan Wilson is fine. Okay, Lo- why the hate? I, I have this conversation with Ben mm-hmm. Baby of the ESPN, yeah. and he's always saying, you know, everybody wants to make Logan Wilson a 
pro bowler. Well, I think he's played very well, and yeah. I think he has improved his production over uh, from when he came into the league. And I think he's done exactly what the Bengals have wanted him to do. He's been a stalwart in the middle of that defense. He hasn't been exposed. He hasn't made any mistakes. I don't know that you're counting on him to make a ton of plays for you. And again, that is okay. I mean, big, big part of big part of, 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 you know, football defense is he's a pretty good play in front of you. Yeah. Make the play in front of you, be a good tackler, that sort of thing. But is he disruptive? And and this sounds like I'm being critical. If, If Logan Wilson's on this defense for the next eight to 10 years, that is fine. That is completely fine. But, but where, where do they excel? They might not have a huge glaring hole, but where are that? Where is on that defense? Where do they absolutely excel? And I don't know that there's a real answer. Again, the interior of the defensive line has been so much better, so you may start there, and that's fine. But do they excel in the secondary? They've had some players play well at, at certain right. points. I think their safeties are still good. Um, Jesse Bates has not played like the best safety in the NFL. No. And, and so, yeah, I worry about some slippage again, especially, you know, and you talked about Akeem Davis gate, they're not being healthy, especially as injuries, uh, become a factor in the second half of the year. So, uh, we're going to go over Jesse Bates numbers and the, the four columns that stick out are tackles for loss, uh, through nine games two, one quarterback hit. One pass defense, and it was the uh, interception return <laughs> to uh, the Jet one-yard line. Uh, one yard line. That's mm-hmm. it through nine games. And look, full marks to Jesse on Monday saying, I got to be better. Yes, maybe the contract situation coming into the season was on my mind, and I let it affect me uh, psychologically, emotionally, and it got to me, And I, I, but I'm going to be better. And I promise you, you're going to see a different Jesse Bates in the second half of the year. Some of the statistics, I forget who it was in the Zoom call, brought this up to Jesse, said, you know, your numbers have been better in the second half in the years Mm -hmm. you've been with the Bengals. So I ask you, Mo, Mo Egger of ESPN 1530 and 700 WLW, the big one. Are Are we going to see a much improved Jesse Bates? And will he be one of the reasons the Bengals defense gets much better in the second half? Yeah, I'll defer to his track record and I'll defer to him kind of understanding, okay, I underperformed in the first half and I have uh, an opportunity in front of me to still be paid like one of the best, you know, handful of safeties in the league. Um, And I appreciated his candor and I I appreciate what what he said to me. I think we can all empathize with his feelings are hurt. I mean, you know, you know, as he, he yeah. asked for, he asked for a, the Bengals countered with B and, and any of us who have been in that situation, it, it, it hurts. I don't care if you're talking about the kind of salaries that football players make or, you know, the average salary of a normal person. Um, there's uncertainty, uncertainty is never good and he's hurt. And that can always impact how you go about your job. At the same time, I'm a big believer in if someone feels a certain way about you, don't give them more of a reason to feel a certain way about you. If you're at work and they think you're sort of a goof off and you, you can't get projects done on time, it's probably not a good idea to be the office prankster. So <laughs> if they feel that you're not the best safety in the league, don't give them ammunition to feel like you're not the best safety in the league. And that's what this whole summer long conversation was about, right? Is he the yep. best safety in the NFL? Right. And I, I, honest, I don't know if he is or isn't. I, I just, I'm not qualified to say that he is, <clears throat> but if he feels like he is and he thinks he should be paid accordingly, but well, then you're going to have to go out there and play like the best safety in the National Football League. And unfortunately, what he's done is, I think, to a degree, he has 
enable the Bengals to kind of dig their heels and go, yep, this is why, you know, we right. robbed you. So um, is there time for him to turn it around? 100%. And I, I defer to his track record. Uh, I defer to the fact that I've, I've watched this guy get better every single year. Um, but if we were to write down a list of, I think some of the, the bigger disappointments of the first eight games of the first nine games, I think we would say that Jesse didn't perform to the level that we thought he could. And that I think that Jesse knows he can, does he figure it out in the second half? I'll certainly give him the benefit of the doubt. But again, if, if, if he wants what he spent the summer trying to get, he cannot perform over the course of the next uh, eight weeks, the way he performed over the first nine. No, no question about that. And, you know, I think most Bengal fans know this. He uh, fired his agent and hired David Mulligetta to mm-hmm. try and get that big deal. And that happened right around Harris, the, the time that the Vikings gave Harrison Smith the big deal, making mm-hmm. him, the, I believe at the time, the best paid safety in the NFL. And that was right around when the Bengals, of course, opened up against Harrison Smith and the Vikings. And I think that all played into Jesse's thinking. And I think it has taken him the first half of the season to get over it now understand that I've, whether or not Mulligata is going to get me, you know, a contract that's commensurate with uh, Harrison Smith or not, I got to be better. And I got to be better for the guys that I'm playing alongside. Maybe he gets franchised next year. Unfortunately for him, I think it's looking like it's trending that way. It does. Um, and, you know, understandably so. And and I, I, I think the Bengals, here's what I hate about this whole thing is, is what it does. And and I have spent a lifetime being critical uh, of the Bengals for any number of things, but what this gets portrayed I think we all have <laughs> Bengals being cheap, right? Well, look, they felt like AJ green at one point was the best wide receiver in the NFL. So they paid him as much. They felt I like agree. Geno Atkins was the best defensive tackle in the NFL. So they, they paid him as much. If they think you're good enough, they will pay you. They don't think he's good enough. Despite what their Twitter feed may say, uh, they don't think he's as good as Jesse Bates thinks he is. And Jesse Bates has amplified the Bengals position that that's, that's almost inarguable. So what does he do to reverse that in the second half of the year? Um, and I, I, what I would like to think is, and, and, you know, trust me as, as a fan, I think every fan would have wanted Jesse to play at an, an all pro level where you're like, dude, Duke, Katie, Troy, pay the guy, give him a blank check but he didn't. And so now what you have to be fair in doing is saying, well, God, you know what? Maybe the Bengals got this right. Maybe, maybe their position, which it wasn't like they didn't want him. It wasn't like they you know, are, are trying to shove him out the door. They want him to be a part of the team. They don't think he's as good as Jesse thinks he is. And Jesse has proven their point so far. So now he's got to do the exact opposite. If he wants to get what, what he feels like he deserves. By the way, um, if the Bengals, I mean, if the Patriots had the same record as mm-hmm the Bengals or close to it over the last two decades, you would say the same thing about the crafts. It's just that the Patriots win and winning changes the whole perspective of whether or not an ownership group is cheap or not. And that's my biggest criticism of those who criticize the Bengals for being cheap. I I don't necessarily think the facts bear that out. I think certainly in the front office, that is bared out by the fact that they have traditionally had by far the smallest Uh, scouting department and the smallest infrastructure in the organization. You can criticize them for that. But in terms of spending on the players that they should be spending the money on, I think for the most part, Katie and Troy get it right. And Duke, they get it right. 
Yeah, you know, the, the the one that everybody comes back to is Andrew Whitworth. And would we all love Andrew Whitworth to to have played the rest of his career in Cincinnati? Well, based on the way he played in Los Angeles, yeah. But I've I've always defended them to a degree because they looked at a at a tackle in his mid 30s and said, We got his best years. We got his best years, so we're not gonna pay him more. That is the same approach that nearly every team in the league would no take. Question. It wasn't that they didn't want Andrew Whitworth. They were not going to bet on him playing at the same level and to a degree even performing better at an advanced age. And guess what? They got it wrong. Okay. But most teams would have done the same thing. And they played the percentages, the odds of Andrew continuing to perform at the level that he had been performing here were, were not in his favor. Odds were he was going to decrease his performance. He was going to age was going to catch up with him. That, 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 those were the percentages and they played them. But that gets thrown at. Have they been cheap on things like, well, they don't pay for a practice facility and they nickel right. dime in the county on this day? Yes, fine. But in terms of paying paying the players, you know, again, I mean, they've they don't overpay rather famously. You know, they weren't going to overpay to keep complimentary players that left in the middle of the decade. But I, I've said often, this is the same team that gave Bobby Hart a four hundred percent raise. That's not a cheap organization. You could criticize them for allocating the money in a way that was non-productive toward winning. Um, in fact, I would say to to a degree. I mean, look, they they gave Geno Atkins a contract that they eventually walked away from, and a lot of us were looking at it. Oh, well, why are you doing that? His best years are behind him. That's not cheap. That's maybe overly loyal. They did the same thing with Carlos Dunlap. It's but for the most part, I mean, go go back to the middle of of the 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 two thousands. Carson Palmer got a huge deal. Willie Anderson got a huge deal. Chad Ochocinco got a huge deal. TJ Hushmanzada, Rudy Johnson, all those key guys got paid. All yes, of them they got did. paid. Great and then point. when they, they turned the corner in 2011, the stalwarts of that team, Andrew Whitworth got multiple contracts in this team. Andy Dalton got paid commensurate to his abilities. AJ Green got paid. Vontez Burfitt got paid. Uh, complimentary players that wanted more money, Marvin Jones, Muhammad Sanu. Well, those guys didn't get paid because those guys were looking for more money than they were actually worth and good for them. Fine. Um, Kevin Huber got paid. I mean, I can go down the list and and recite for people the, the number of key guys in this organization that the Bengals paid market deals to. A.J. Green briefly was the highest paid wide receiver in the NFL. Uh, Geno Atkins briefly was the highest paid player in the NFL. And then look at recently, they overpaid for Trey Waynes. They had to, but they overpaid. They overpaid for DJ Reader. It's paid off this year, but they had to. Uh, that's not cheap. They've made some bad draft decisions. They, they've made some personnel decisions that, that haven't worked out. They were maybe tethered to some players a little bit uh, longer than they should have been. Billy Price and Michael Jordan. Uh, 100%. Yes. Yeah, they look, just they, missed. They they whiffed on Cedric Abwehi and Tyler Eifert's injuries caught up to him and Dark West Denard never played we'll, like a we'll first round pick. We'll say about Jackson Carmen, but he's a rookie, right? So the, a, a lot of things from the the standpoint of picking the right players haven't worked. But the the assertion that this team is cheap when it comes to players is antiquated uh, and not based on fact. And for every criticism I will throw at the Bengals, and every time I talk with somebody in that front office, they remind me of them. I will push back against the notion that when it comes to building the roster, they are frugal. All right. Uh, this is Mo Egger. I'm speaking with of ESPN 1530, 700 WLW. Uh, Mo, what about your rock solid number five Cincinnati Bearcats? <laughs> uh, get rock solid being the words that Gary Barta, the uh, CFP committee chair, used on Tuesday night to describe the Bearcats position in between Michigan and Michigan State. 
Um, boy, I'm glad I didn't watch that in real time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's, I think he used the wrong verbiage. I mean, I just, if, if, if he would just say, look, yes, uh, Michigan state beat Michigan. We just think Michigan's better. I, what, don't go into, well, watching games is a part of it. I mean, it's a huge part of it. And well, you know, the different data points suggest, well, then people are going to say, well, what about the data point of the scoreboard when the two teams played head to head? It does make you wonder if you're as paranoid as a lot of people are. Okay. Well, if head to head's not going to matter in that case, what's head to head going to matter for Ohio state and Oregon and what could head to head matter down the road for UC and Notre Dame. I'm, I'm not as worried about that as, as a lot of people seem to be, it, it highlights the flaws of, of this process, but all that's going to take care of itself. You know, the, the big 10, the way the pieces have fallen so far in the big 10 doesn't concern me as much because Ohio state and Michigan state are going to play. And chances are Ohio state's going to eliminate Michigan state from the conversation. And then Ohio state right. and Michigan are going to play. And one of those two teams is going to eliminate the other from the conversation. And then there's still a big 10 championship game to, to be played. So, but the, the verbiage, if you lack faith in this process, as most of us do, it, it didn't do anything to dissuade you. And, and so, um, you know, I can understand why people were up in arms last night about it, but it, it, you know, did, did we think, did, did we think this was a process without holes to begin with? No, I think he sort of revealed what we already knew and that, you know, watching the actual games and, and head to head results and things like that don't matter maybe as much as most of us think they should. Yeah. I, I think I am of the belief, Mo, that if the Bearcats win their final two regular season games in the AAC, that they are going to wind up in the playoffs somehow, some way. I just, I don't think a 13 and 0 team uh, doesn't wind up in that number four spot uh, in the CFB. I just, that, that's my sense. Um, and it's subjective. And I think the whole process is overly subjective, way too much so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, believe in, in what the Bearcats have put out on the field. Yes, they've had some close calls. I've been there for those close calls. I mean, the game against Tulsa to me was maybe the most alarming. I mean, people will point to Tulane, but they really pulled away in that second half. And I, uh, mm-hmm. you were there, right? Uh, I was, yeah. they, uh, they were the better team that day. And I, the Navy game was a little fluky because I thought that they were having trouble adjusting to, uh, the triple wing and all everything that Navy does and plays the game a much different style. The Tulsa game is what concerned me at the end, their inability to put that game away. Yeah. Of the four, that was the only one that you felt like was at least somewhat in doubt. Right. I, you never felt like they were going to lose to UCF or USF. You never felt no. like the two lane game was even close to being in doubt. And, and I know Navy had the football down by seven in the final moments. Uh, if you have to ask Navy to throw exclusively what happened, which was Arquan Bush making the, the pick was always going to happen. That, that that's, I felt comfortable there. Didn't feel comfortable against uh, Tulsa. And and what was uh, most frustrating to me about that game specifically was you're up 28 to 12. You have the football after a turnover, you get to roughly midfield and you can't put this team away. And, and the one thing that I think is true about these last four games is there have been these points where you felt like they're a, a score away or a stop away from salting this game away for good. And they, they haven't done it. They, they didn't do it against Tulsa. And then, you know, I, I think what frustrates a lot of people and, and I share it is, they have defensively, you know, against Tulsa in the run game, they stayed in a 3-3-5, didn't make a lot of sense. 
uh, against right. uh, USF. They didn't start sending pressure until they absolutely had to. And, and this defensive line, except for, uh, aside from my Sanders, nobody was getting close to the quarterback. So I think there's two separate issues here. I think there's how the pieces may fall in the rankings. And, and look, I, I do think the committee sent a pretty clear message. Cincinnati is still ranked ahead of Michigan, Michigan State, Correct. Oklahoma State, Notre yes. Dame. I'm not as worried about those schools. They've sent a message. Win your games. If stuff takes care of itself in front of you, you're going to be in the top four. If Oregon loses this weekend to Utah, right? then next Tuesday, Cincinnati, if they win, if they beat SMU, is going to be in the top four. Um, you know, what we don't know is, you know, people talk about, well, what about a two-loss Alabama team? And I, I keep asking, and there's no answer to it. What does the loss look like that would eliminate them from the conversation? Because people say, well, what if they lose by three points? Okay, well, what if they lose by 10? Does that mean they're out? What if they lose by they lose by 10, but Georgia scored a touchdown in the last minute to make it a two-score game? Like, what, what does that loss look like? But the bigger issue for me is, can this team go undefeated? Uh, SMU's Tanner Mordecai is, um, is thrown 37 touchdown passes in 10 games. It's a highly explosive offense. UC and SMU have played some close games before. Last year was not one. They beat them by 29 points. But with the way this defense has played, I mean, that USF game, what was most alarming was they're, you know, they scored a touchdown on a, on a slant where a guy takes a bad angle and he outruns the defense. That stuff happens. What is not supposed to happen is converting on third and 10 repeatedly, converting on, converting on third and 16 repeatedly. That happened on a 75-yard touchdown drive. It happened on a 98-yard touchdown drive against a defense that is supposed to be one of the best in the country. So what holes and issues are revealing themselves defensively that SMU can expose, that ECU can expose with a veteran quarterback, and that ultimately, assuming they play him in the championship game, that Houston can expose? I'm kind of more into the football part of this. Can this team, you know, I think the good news is we're done worrying about margin of error. We're, we're done watching these games, right. thinking about style points. Style and, points, and right. That has been a truly miserable way to watch football, right? Yes. The team's up 17 points. Just we're win still the game, nervous. By yeah, the way, you're, to you're, the game. I mean, I, I, I texted a buddy of mine on Friday night. I'm like, I'm on edge and it's 31 to 7. And I don't think there's a chance in hell that USF is going to win this game. But, oh, my God, what if they only win by 10? I think those days are behind us, and that is a credit to the opponents they play. I know SMU is not ranked. I know they're not a huge name brand, but they do have a road win against TCU, and TCU is not very good this year, but that's still pretty tough to do. ECU with a quarterback in Holt Nailers, who has had success against Cincinnati before, that game scares me to death. It's a Friday after Thanksgiving, oh, and you yeah. know yes. if UC goes there 11-0, that's a huge civic event in Greenville, North Carolina, yep. and the Houston game is, is going to be very, very challenging as well. So. I tend to think that if the Bearcats can handle the football part of it, then the, the metrics part of it and the committee part of it is going to take care of itself. I am not worried about Notre Dame leapfrogging Cincinnati. I am not worried about Oklahoma State leapfrogging Cincinnati. The Big Ten is going to take care of itself, and I think Oregon's going to lose a game. Um, I think the bigger question is, can this team take care of its own business because the way they were playing in early October is not the way they're playing here in mid-November? And I am of the belief that, uh, believe it or not, that I think I would rather go up against a, a quarterback who is going to try and throw the ball against the secondary and mm -hmm. against his pass defense than run the ball. And the reason I say that is based on what I saw with Navy and Tulsa, teams that can power run out of different looking formations have been able to run the ball up the middle against the Bearcats. That's what concerns me. And, and hold yeah. on to the ball. 
Yeah, Tulsa was not exactly reinventing offensive football. It was just, you know, hand it off, send our right. two big backs at you, run you over, and it worked. Um, yeah, and it was, you know, shorten the game, minimize possessions. I, I you know, I completely agree with you. Um, I, I think I think this team's going to be fine. But but again, fluky top end things def- happens. Top, yes. Yeah, fluky thing. It's hard to go undefeated. <laughs> you know, we we talk about it as if it's just second. Oh, they'll go thirteen. I know it's really hard to go undefeated, and they are playing good offenses, quality teams. Houston is playing very well right now. And again, that, that ECU game. If the if the Bearcats win on Saturday, I I'm gonna instantly be uneasy about the game against uh, against ECU. But again, I I think all this stuff gets shoved to the background because it's easy to yell at the the committee and it's easy to to rail against the process. And I I I can do all those things, but I think they've sent a message. If you take care of your shop, you're going to be invited. So can the Bearcats take care of their shop? Uh, they're dealing with an extraordinary amount of pressure. I have felt like at times in, in recent weeks, offensively in particular, that they look like a team that's wearing the weight of, of the pressure of playing perfect and finishing with an un- unbeaten record. I do think offensively, uh, the, the bright spot of the USF game is I think they did tap into some things that they could apply moving forward. Without Jerome Ford, I thought the running game had a little bit more variety to it. And USF said, we're not going to let you beat us deep. And the short passing game, which really hasn't worked to the extent that it should this season, um, suddenly flourished. And so what can you take from those two things that you could apply to these these next three? Especially with a guy like Josh Wiley, you've got to get him more involved. And I think they're going to probably wind up doing that. Well, it's been a blast as always, Mo. Anything you want to promote? Anything coming up on ESPN 1530? Me just yammering away. That's what we do. That's what they pay us (laughs) millions and millions and millions 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 of pennies to do. Uh, By the way, I still, I I can't get over your display behind you. It's just one of the best backgrounds I've ever seen on any Zoom. Uh, I love it. Yeah. You know, this was all constructed in the era pre-Zoom, so it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've done it with like my kitchen in the background. I did one for my daughter's toy room, and this is still better than that. Well, it's been great having you on, Mo. You got it, man. Anytime. All right. That is episode 18 of the Jungle Roar podcast. Want to thank Mo Egger for joining me. Of course, you can follow him on Twitter and uh, please do tune him in on ESPN 1530. Mo, your hours are again three to six Eastern, three o'clock to six, three to six Eastern. Very good. All right. For Mo Egger, I'm Mike Petralia, and this has been the Jungle Roar podcast.